0: Nadia El-Rashidi Alston is married to Neil, and she is the mother of four children ages four three and two two two-year-olds. Nadia is a very interesting and accomplished woman. I was fortunate to live with her during our sophomore year of college and after our time at UC Davis Nadia went on to the Peace Corps where she worked and served in El Salvador and then on to Harvard University where she earned a master's degree in Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. She's worked at the World Bank, she's worked in the West Bank, and at this point in her life has come to deeply love and enjoy being home with her four young children. She's a fascinating person and I'm so glad to be able to share this interview with the Parenting Reimagined community. Thanks so much for listening to Parenting Reimagined. This is Parenting Reimagined, a place where the conversation goes beyond what we do as parents, and we take the time to consider what parenting teaches us, how it transforms us, and what being parents means for the landscape of our inner lives. I am Sherry Walling.
1: My name is Nadia, and I'm married to Neil, and we... We're married in 2006. We have four kids now. <laughs> so we have Lana, who was born in 2008, and she is four years old. Almost five in May is what she would be very quick to add. Theo is our second child and is three years old. And then we have twins, Zeke and Imani, who are almost two and a half years old and who were adopted in 2010.
2: And and did you adopt them, like, right after they were born, or how old were they when they came into your family?
1: Well, we found them when they were two months old and when they had just been brought to an orphanage in eastern Congo. But it took us 11 months to actually get custody of them. So we got custody of them when they were 13 months old. And you were
2: living in Kenya at the time.
1: Yeah, we were living in Nairobi. Neil works for Google, and at that particular time, he had taken a position to work on the Sub Saharan Africa business development team. And so he was in Nairobi for an assignment, and we didn't realize that we were going to actually be there when we were going to adopt. We hadn't even really thought about whether or not we were going to have more kids at that point, but it just ended up happening that we did. We just decided that we wanted to have have more kids and we decided we wanted to adopt those kids.
2: What was it about Zeke and Amani or how did you find out about them, you know, the pair of them in particular that that led you to them?
1: Yeah, it's it's an interesting story because in October when I started broadcasting very loudly to anyone that would listen that I was finished having children. (laughs) that i was just happy and fine with having my two kids and i was done and not even i want to say it was like not even 10 days later i had a complete about face and i suddenly was just obsessed with the idea of adopting children and i started searching online about adoption and i started searching specifically in ethiopia and then i felt uneasy about ethiopia like it wasn't the right fit or something. And I started suddenly switching to Eastern Congo and Eastern Congo, because Neil had worked in Africa as a young 20 year old. And that was kind of where he always sort of points to is saying that that's where he became a man. And it kind of has is a country that left a really big impression on him. And Eastern Congo is just a complete disaster. I mean, the the country of Congo is, a, is kind of a mess, but Eastern Congo is generally agreed upon as being a complete disaster. And so the idea of adopting out of Eastern Congo is pretty much crazy. But that's where I really felt like we needed to look. And so I started looking and looking and looking online for agencies that would adopt from there and I couldn't find any. And then I ran across a blog and the blog was about an orphanage in Eastern Congo. And Neil had some contacts back from when he had worked in the Congo. Um, He worked for Food for the Hungry um, International in Congo. So he said to me, well, I know this guy and he's, actually working in the Congo, in Eastern Congo. Maybe I could call him and find out. Maybe he knows something about whether or not it's even possible to adopt from that area. He scheduled a phone call, and he talked to this guy, and it turned out that that man was the husband of the woman who was posting about this orphanage in Eastern Congo. So I had found the wife, and he had spoken to the husband. They Mm -hmm. informed us that they were closely involved with this orphanage because they had just adopted twins from that orphanage and that they had helped six other families adopt from that orphanage. The next thing that came to pass was that, you know, we had seen pictures from that blog and they had just accepted two new children, the twins, Zeke and Amani. And one of the first questions I asked was, would it at all be possible to adopt those boys? And I don't know what it was about them. it was just I looked at them, and I knew that we had wanted to adopt siblings, two little boys. It just kind of clicked in my head that maybe those were our kids. Hmm. yeah
2: I imagine the process from there was sort of complicated.
1: Oh yeah, well, especially because of the fact that it's it's not a typical adoption story in the sense that we didn't go through an agency. we went independently. And so we were trying to be very, very vigilant and very careful because part of the reason that agencies exist is to ensure that there is no corruption and no underhandedness and that children are being uh, lawfully treated and that everything is done legally, you know, that you are just going through all of the, the necessary processes to ensure that things are being done right. And so since it wasn't going to be possible really to use an agency in Eastern Congo, we had decided that we would really think about and pray about whether or not we wanted to do it at all. In our situation, it was very we were very lucky or fortunate or blessed. Vince Neil had worked there, he had lots of contacts in the country, which helped enormously. People that he trusted, people that could check on things for us, people that could go to government agencies, Congolese government agencies, and... Verify that things were really being done the right way. Then we had this couple that was living there that Neil knew because of his background with Food for the Hungry. And so we had Americans, you know, that shared our vision of what things needed to look like on the ground, working essentially with the kids that we wanted to adopt. And so, I mean, in terms of wow. having, that, you know, serious levels of clearance to be sure that things were being done the right way, I mean, there was really no better way to do it than the way that we did it. So it was a long process just in the country, I mean, just clearing the Congolese side of things. And then when you adopt internationally, you have to abide by the country where you adopt from, all of their laws and all of their processes for adoption. And then you have to go through all all those same things with your country. And so we had to, had to do both sets of paperwork. So all that just takes a lot of time, and it's just a crazy bureaucratic mess in a lot of ways because a lot of it is, is kind of redundant and kind of um, nonsensical, some of the, the paperwork. But the end result is that it's trying to ensure that kids are being adopted that are actually orphans and that the parents that adopt them or the people that adopt them are good people, and they're not. In it for some other really negative things I mean it's there for a reason but it's it's still I mean it's still paperwork and still governments and so it ends up taking a long time
0: hmm
2: sounds like a full-time job just just yeah I mean, facilitating facilitating that. <laughs> <laughs> during this time you are are living in Nairobi and I I know you have lived internationally you were in the Peace Corps in El Salvador well what was it like to live in Africa with with two and then four little
1: children. Oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Nairobi is is interesting because Nairobi is is just a, a complex thing to explain because it's not it's not the Africa that you might imagine. It's just in the same way your experience, you know, when you went to Africa in undergrad, like when you went there you probably had a certain image in your head of what Africa looks like. And then you went there and you were like, "Oh wow, this is kind of what I thought and kind of not what I thought. Yeah. Yeah. So Nairobi is funny because it has three million people. You know, it's one of the largest cities, you know, in Africa. And then you have, you know, KFC and Japanese and Mediterranean food and shopping malls and coffee shops and Planet Yogurt and all that stuff, which seems very normal or American and developed. And then you have... The slums, like Kibera, which is one of the largest in Africa as well of like hundred and sixty or one hundred and seventy thousand people in Nairobi as well, and Nairobi also has other slums, like there's something like sixty something slums just inside of Nairobi, which are mm. just terrible places. I mean they're not terrible places for the people that live there because to the people that live there, they're home, but they're you know poor sanitation, there's no electricity, it's people are very poor that are living there. And so you have that, and you have highways and freeways that seem like they're, they could be, you know, if you took a snapshot of them, could be anywhere in the United States. And then you have roads that are just two-lane dirt roads that are just humongous boulders, and that's just right outside of your door. And so it's, like, really weird because for one minute, you could say, oh, man, this is really, really tough, and I can't even get to the store because all of the – there's, like, a huge traffic jam, and – Nobody's been moved for like two hours because, who knows, a power line went down or somebody did something stupid driving and, you know, there's the cops aren't coming to actually, you know, break it up or clean it up or whatever. And so you can't get anywhere. So it has a lot of inconveniences that are very Africa, and then you have all this other stuff that's like right at your fingertips if, if you have enough money for a beautiful safari vacation mm-hmm. with, you know, tents, and you know, you could just, you know, drop into Kenya and have an amazing time and take helicopters to the top of mountains and do all this crazy stuff and see a very different mm-hmm. side of the country. But as a parent, you know, you're navigating both of those worlds at the same time it's hard because you're dealing with four little kids that are dependent on you and you know, you don't know whether or not you're going to be able to do the laundry. So you do laundry every day because you don't know if you're going to get to the laundry. You don't know if you're going to have water. You don't know if you're going to have power that day. You don't know whether or not you're going to have the meal on the table because maybe you planned a meal, but then you go to the store and they don't actually have any of the stuff that you wanted to buy. You, have to improvise, <laughs> and then you get home, and you know you try to cook the meal, and then the power goes out, and you were gonna cook it in the oven, which is electric. And you're like, okay, never mind. <laughs> what do we have <laughs> in the fridge that you know we can just eat without cooking? You know? <laughs> so, hmm. so it's funny, but then at the same time, we had help because labor there is so cheap. cheap. We had four people working it for us at one point. Four people. 40 hours a week, month to month, all it cost us was for one person, it cost us about $140. And so you could have a driver, you wow. can have a babe, you can have a chef, you can have, like, you can really live it up on that sense. But you know, at the same time, you're just diff- dealing with somebody that may or may not share your viewpoint on parenting because they're from a very different culture than you and how mm-hmm. they go about, you know, dealing with, you know, parenting hiccups and stuff like that. Like you're, it's, it's difficult. But then at the same time, like, if you need to walk all the way to the supermarket because there's a traffic jam and there's a power outage and you may not have water and you need to go to the store, like, you can actually go to the store and not have to bring all four kids with you. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know what I mean? So, it makes yeah. it funny. It's just a really strange thing. And it was amazing because it's also so cosmopolitan. Like, Nairobi is kind of the hub of Africa so so many things go through it to the rest of Africa and so there are lots of organizations there and so we just I mean I didn't realize how many expats live in Nairobi I mean we knew people from New Zealand from Ethiopia from India Americans from you know England everywhere. It was just crazy. Like, I didn't realize that going into it, that it would be that much of an experience, not of Kenyans, but of, of the world of all these people from all over just in this one place. It was just a crazy. major international city. Yeah, it was a very strange experience in that way. Hmm.
2: Having having lived in in West Africa, and remember just the flexibility with which you live every day. Mm-hmm. Some of these the challenges of daily life that you're talking about. Will I have water today? Will I have electricity? You know, what sort of plan A, B, and C for what my day looks like, depending on what's available. And I found that frustrating as a 20 year old. I can only imagine trying to be that flexible
1: with four little ones who <laughs> yeah.
2: also demand a lot of flexibility.
1: Yeah, and you know how flexible two-year-olds are and three-year-olds, and you know, like, they're probably the least flexible people on the planet. And, you know, you have these ways of dealing with it. Generally, it's like you try to manage their expectations, and then the expectations get blown out of the water, (laughs) and you're like, oh, boy, and you're just ready for tantrums. I don't know. I have to say that maybe because of the because of Nairobi, maybe, I feel like our kids really deal with a changing game plan very quickly. They just have a very different response to when anything that just normally would just freak a kid out, like, oh, we're not going to go do this, we're going to go do that, or we can't go to the park today, we have to go to the store. They just went with it, especially... <laughs> especially given how much we've we changed the game on them because of the way our life works because i mean when we came back to the states we didn't even know where we were living from may till august we were you know couch surfing but with four kids four children yeah (laughs) and i don't know like i mean yes yes it's stressful and yes it takes a lot of parental energy because you're just you're trying to manage not only your emotional reaction to things but for other people's emotional reaction. And yet it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. Mm-hmm.
2: And you're now, are you now living in San Francisco or, or what city are you living in?
1: Yeah, we're in San Francisco. We're right near the Painted Ladies, near Alamo Square. Okay. Yeah. So that's,
2: that's a very different life than
1: living there. I know, aren't we silly? Yeah, it's like we just try to make things difficult for ourselves. I don't know, like, for whatever reason, when we came back, we both really just felt drawn to the city. And it's not the conventional choice when you have small kids, I don't think, to go running into the city. But that's what we did, because we really just felt like that would be the right place for our family. And it ended up working. It's working out. I mean, we've we've got the, this great place. It's a condominium. And we're sandwiched between two other condominiums, which many people would think, oh, my God, like, are your neighbors going to kill you? But we have two amazing neighbors above and below us who have, each of them have two kids. And it's just this building of eight children that have amazing parents. It's like an immediate little community that we moved into. As it turns out, our block also has just lots of small kids on it. And it's just been really cool. It's just been a really good neighborhood for us to just explore the city and, and not feel strange at all. As a yeah. family, like we walk around, and yeah, we we still get a lot of attention, but not as much attention as I think we might get elsewhere.
2: <laughs> yeah, and well, your cultural background is Egyptian and Dutch, yeah. and your husband is Caucasian European.
1: Yeah, he actually has roots um, from Sweden as well as Ireland, but okay. you know, he his his family's been in in the U.S. for a while now, so he's he's pretty much American as American as you can get.
2: You have two children that are blonde, and two children yeah. that are Kenyan.
1: Yeah, or I'm sorry, <laughs> that
2: are from the Congo.
1: And then it is funny when I'm walking around; it's not the blonde ones that I get matched with. It's the it's the it's the black ones. So, <laughs> so as far as as whose mother I am, it really kind of up for grabs. As far as the onlooker, I'm everybody's mommy. Yeah, it's been interesting the whole racial makeup of our family. Yeah. <laughs>
2: And what I'm just curious what kinds of conversations you and your family members are having about race and culture, whether that's something that you've been talking about with with your older children or how you're thinking about that in your family.
1: I I don't know how much of a deep conversation I really had with the kids. I mean, Lana, sometimes she obviously is aware and she's four. So she's been saying things like, Zeke and Lani, they don't look like us, but they're my brothers, right? And we're not giving them back to anyone, right? You know, you go through the explanation that you can with a four-year-old. As far as as the color of the skin, I, it it just hasn't really been something that we've discussed. I think one thing that I'm I'm going to take from is my own experience in that, like you said, like I'm Egyptian and Dutch as far as my ethnicity, but as far as who I am, I'd say I'm an American because I grew up here from when I was two years old, pretty much the same exact story that Zeke and Amani are going to have. Hmm. As far as how much I really identify as being Egyptian, the way that my father identifies being an Egyptian is completely different. I mean, I, I can't identify with that at all because I just don't feel like I share that narrative that he has or the culture that he has from his country. And same thing with my mom, like my mom is Dutch. I mean, when you talk to her and she you ask her about her identity, she would say, "I am Dutch, you know, and she's Dutch because that was her story, you know, and that's where she came from, and she has so many opinions that come out of that identity of growing up and and being. Part of that country, I don't have that, and so when I think about who I am and I think about my my racial background, it's a very different identity than than the one that I feel like I really, I really have, which is it's kind of a funny disconnect. Knowing that and knowing how how I feel about that, I think one of the things that I feel like is really important for the twins is that they know their story. As far as any onlooker, they're going to be black, and and you know any onlooker might have a very simplistic understanding of who they are based on how they look. But Zeke and Imani, as far as what they'll know about themselves, you know, they'll know, unlike a lot of black people in the United States, they'll know what village in Africa they came from. And they'll know the story of Mm -hmm. their parents and the story of how their mother died in childbirth. And they'll know about their father and how he raised goats. And they'll know the history of the Congo and the history of their small part of the Congo, which Mm. is their birthplace. And it's a beautiful place, but it's also a pain-filled path that country has. So as much as I can give them the beauty of their country and give them the story of their country so that they at least know a little bit about how they got to where they are, I I think that'll be something that's really important. Because I know that when I talk to people in the U.S. that are black and they don't know that story, you can tell that it actually bothers them a lot that they wish they knew where they came from. And there's actually been a huge movement, as far as I know, amongst African-Americans to kind of try to find out what their story is and where they came from, what tribe, and what kind of trace back their ancestry so that they can have a story. And I I think that like as much as Amani and Ziki are going to be adopted into the American story, as well as having been adopted by us. And so it's going to be an interesting thing to see how they process that because I don't really know what that's going to look like but I think one other thing that I, I'm i really thankful for is that they won't be processing that by themselves they'll have somebody that looks like them like almost exactly like them <laughs> that will have <laughs> an ex, you know a very similar story and so and that's going to be slightly easier I think than having to do it all by yourself because I know that there are going to be so many times in their lives when they look around and they say, no one understands. Having a twin really sort of affords you the capacity to to look at somebody else besides yourself to try to help figure out how to make sense of a situation. So I'm glad that they have each other.
0: Yeah.
2: So you are a highly intelligent, very accomplished person. You've served in the Peace Corps. You have a master's degree from Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. You worked for the World Bank, you've lived all over the world, and I'm just wondering how you are adjusting to life the life of a stay-at-home mom.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Well, thanks, first of all, for thinking I'm intelligent and accomplished. As far as being at home, I've been doing this for a while now. Since 2007, I've been at home. So even before Lana was born, I was by myself at home getting ready for Lana to be born. And then... I adjusted to one kid, and then I adjusted to two kids, and then I adjusted to, bam, four kids. And I had to make those adjustments first in the Silicon Valley, which is where we were living when I had my first two kids. And then we went to Nairobi, and I had two more to enter the picture. I think the thing that I wrestled with is something that is a common belief, among maybe our culture, I really feel like it's something very specific to American culture about how being at home with kids is somehow at odds with your intellectual self and making those things able to live together is not harmonious. I feel like it's it's a lie that exists and when I was first sort of embarking on being at home, I really believed it. I didn't think that I was going to be able to retain that part of my identity. And I think there was a real fear and an almost like a panic for the first couple of years I was at home thinking that I was not only surrendering, you know, the life that I was comfortable with being independent, being out there in the world every day. I felt like I was letting that die or something. I think that I had to was the part that was the lie and I didn't understand. And I think it sabotages me even now when I sometimes get kind of tunnel vision on feeling like you're just sort of driven from task to task to task. And kids can be really demanding and they're really good at at voicing what they need. And it's easy, I feel like, to fall into the pattern of playing the logistics and sort of doing doing everything that needs to get done and taking a backseat to yourself all day long and doing, doing, doing. And what I found is that when I am complacent and when I am too task oriented, I disappear a little bit. And I have to just be extremely present and aware of what feeds my soul. And that has been something that I've been better and have I'm getting better at drawing a line and saying this is this is part of me that needs to be fed and this is part of me that I need to to protect and as a mother too and as as Nadia yeah but I feel like that's something that can get lost a little bit sometimes when you have so many things to do so what I try to do at least is to just remember that that's a part of me and when I'm Talking with my kids and when I'm planning my day, and when I'm going to even just undertake a normal task like doing the dishes, I try not to let myself disappear. I don't know how else to put it, but it's just, it's sort of a, a presence of mind that I feel like I can either have or not have regarding letting my brain and le- letting my real self out and not letting it just be about doing things.
2: Yeah, the mindset of being completely poured out and responsive to the to kind of every demand of your household and your children versus somehow containing your inner self still, like you don't have to be all poured out. You can still be responsive and present to your children, but also very much present in your own mind.
1: It's something like that. There just needs to be an understanding that there is a self and that you can't just not check in with that person. And I feel hmm. like a lot of mothers, at least I was that mother, it's like, it's like that turns off or something. It's the self that once was. Somehow gets left behind in those first six, seven months of of a baby just you know catapulting into the world, and you're suddenly like, oh my gosh, what do I do with this? And you're up at night, and it's and it's like a grueling Marine Corps experience of we're depriving you of sleep, and we're going to run you ragged, and all this stuff, and it's like it's an easy thing to to lose ourselves in all that, and just eat, sleep, and just try to survive in in the way that you can to try to get these. Little beings, you know, through the day and yourself through the day. But in the midst of all that, there needs to be an understanding of who you are and there needs to be some kind of grace for yourself. There needs to be a place where you say, you know what, I need something too. Because the little person that is next to you as much as they're amazing and wonderful, like they're just sort of reacting to their environment they're and they're so they're innocently taking over, but there needs to be part of you that stays aware to recognize that you too need to be nurtured and taken care of and accommodated.
2: I feel like one of the things you're talking about is cultivating an inner life, you know having your own thoughts, having your own ideas, your own dreams. Attending to your own tastes for the day—that there's there's a lot going on in your mind that that is in addition to the busyness that's going on in your environment with the children.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's exactly that. I feel like it's maintaining the the right to have your own purposes and the right to have your own dreams and wishes and being able to to understand that those things need and must be also accommodated so that you're not just trying to please other people. Yeah.
2: What has parenting taught you about yourself?
1: Oh, boy. I feel like it keeps teaching me lots of things. <laughs> I feel like the major thing that it taught me is that I can do it and that I can be confident that I can do it. Not because I have some magic recipe or because I you know went to a really good school or... Whatever. I think the reason I can do it is because I have God and I have the capacity that even when all of my own resources are exhausted, there's an infinite resource that I can draw on to, to give me fuel and to give me energy and to give me an answer sometimes that I don't have myself. I feel, I feel like that was the biggest lesson that I got was that at the end of the day, not to doubt myself, not because I had the answer, but because I knew where to get the answer if I didn't have it. Hmm.
2: what's been most challenging for you
1: let's see it depends on if you want to go nitty-gritty or if you want to go big picture if we go nitty-gritty i'd say potty training is not fun and i i don't like potty training (laughs) i put it off as long as i possibly can and if there's any possibility that the child will actually potty train himself then (laughs) then i try to go with that but if we're talking about the big picture, I would say the biggest challenge for me is probably what you talked about, which is, is, is reconciling the fact that I have this very strong identity and I did have a very strong identity, even as a, as, as a single person going into marriage was hard for me. So reconciling that identity and reconciling and being okay with who I am, transferring into this new role of being a parent, not lose parts of myself that I feel like are very much things that I value, but are sometimes at odds with little kids. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And you've said a little bit about this, but I wonder if you want to flesh it out a little more. One of my favorite questions is to ask how parenting has deepened their spirituality or their faith.
1: Well, let's just say this. I've done lots of things in my life and I'm supposed to be as far as people, looking at my resume, very accomplished, theoretically able to take and do a lot of things that not everybody can do. You know, I worked at the World Bank. I worked in the West Bank. (laughs) I've done Peace Corps. I did a lot of things. And yet, in all of those other jobs that I've had in my life, I pretty much could tell God, you know what? I've got this. I can do this. You know, we'll check in and I'll let you know how, how things are going. And, and maybe every so often I'll see whether or not you have some input to offer, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I send. I'll send up a status report and yeah. <laughs> give me a <laughs> little
2: evaluation. My-
1: I was so arrogant, yeah. But I was really—I mean, I really feel feel like I—I I had it. And you know, there were really days in most of those situations where I was really wringing my hands and being like, "Oh my gosh, this is just—I'm done. I'm at the end of myself, and there's no where else I can turn." And parenting is that thing for me. I feel <laughs> like I feel like God knew that He had me in the right place when he gave me four kids because I think he knew that to give me four kids was to ensure that I would never walk away from him because Mm -hmm. there's just nothing other than God sometimes that saves the day in my house. I can tell you that much.
2: There's something about parenting that brings you to your ultimate vulnerability and you know most aware of your weaknesses and your selfishness and liability and all of that stuff that i think just sort of flies in the face of all of our pretty accomplishments that sit so nicely on our resumes
1: yeah and we're supposed to have our have our stuff together you know and that's like the the major mantra of every professional is to have it together and to appear to have it together, even if if you don't have it together. And so it's funny because that is the big thing for me that here in, in my house, I want to have it together. And I, and you know, you're sitting there, you're trying, striving, failing, to keep it together, you know, and yet, you know, you show up every day for the job because it's probably, you know, the more important one that you've done your whole entire life but it's one that you feel like sometimes you have least training for.
2: Yeah. I'm wondering Mm -hmm. about that, the ways in which our parenting lives that require so much more depth and work than our intellectual
1: work. For me, what it is, is that it's one of the few things, and it's so sad to say this, and gosh, I know it's going to go back to every last employer I've ever had, but, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't care about anything more than this. When when you're going to, When you're really trying to to make somebody cry, what you do is you you go for the gut. That is my kids. Not being able to know how to parent my kids or feel like I'm not going to follow through for them, that is the worst thing. That would be the worst thing for me because this is the test I have to ace. I don't care about the rest of the test. If I can't help Lana understand how to live with vitiligo, you know, and I have to parent her through that somehow, how do I do that? I can't fail at equipping her as much as I know how to and pouring as much as I can into that. I'm not going to fail. You know, in each of yeah. these my kids, you know, you, you can think of something for each of your kids that you know is going to be a challenge for them. And it's, it's going to be something that they individually will have to suffer and figure out. But as much as I know how to, I want to be able to give them the emotional reserves, but also the confidence in themselves to be able to know where they can get that answer. If it's out in the world, great. And if it's not out in the world, if it's God, God, I hope all my kids get to know who God is so that they have that, they have that eternal salvation, but also that present daily safety net of knowing that they don't have to know the answer and that they don't have to always feel good and they don't always have to perform. And it's the thing that matters most to me. This is this is the job that that is going to count on my resume at the end mm. of my life. Yeah.
2: One last question. When your kids are ready to go off on their own adventures, to travel the world or go to college, how do you hope they describe you and the role that you played in their lives?
1: I don't know what my kids will say about me. I always kind of feel like, I've led a pretty unconventional life, and I think that the reason I made those choices and I was able to to do that was because I believed not in conventional wisdom, but in eternal truth. I hope that if my kids think back to me and they think back to my life and they were to comment on it, that they would say their mother lived an unconventional life for what the world says is conventional, but she lived true to God and true to herself. Hmm. I hope that they would do the same thing. That they would just be true to God and true to themselves, and nothing else really matters, as far as I'm concerned. I hope that I have a day in my life when one of my kids is in front of me and is challenging me and says, "No, mom, you don't get it. I I have to do this. God has made it as clear to me that I have to do this, and nothing else matters. If that actually happens one day, then I'm going to feel really accomplished. I feel like their true north will have been set. That's what I really want to see happen in each of my kids
2: you want to raise kids that know how to really listen to God and and to really listen to their yeah. own passions and callings
1: yeah
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Parenting Reimagined. If you like what you heard, visit our website, parentingreimagined.org, and sign up for our mailing list. You can also like us on Facebook. Thanks for taking the time to be part of this community of parents who's committed to learning the deeper lessons of parenting.